This is an exclusive just on the podcast interview. We are so excited to have Mercedes on our show. Mercedes, thank you so much for being on this show. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I am a fourth-generation Jehovah's Witness. I was born in the West Coast, raised in the Midwest. I was raised Jehovah's Witness. All my friends were Jehovah's Witness. I lived in a tiny little farming community, and pretty much everyone I knew were witnesses. It's very small, Kingdom Hall. It was nice, at least when I was there. I didn't get baptized until I was 19, but my friends, they got baptized at like 12 years old, 12 and 13. And I remember just never feeling ready. I always felt scared because I knew what the consequence would be. And I don't think I ever really felt committed at all, to be honest. I always hated it. I dreaded meetings. I dreaded service. I dreaded conventions. I dreaded all of it. And it was interesting because everybody seems so happy and talks about how they're so happy, but it's very fake. (laughs) It's yeah, I just never felt that. I never got there. I never was like, oh, yes, I love Jehovah more than anything. I want to dedicate my life to him. Eventually, I did do uh, dedicate my life, but that was for a boy. So, wasn't really. I'm sorry. Back, <laughs> back up a bit. I'm only laughing because it makes so much sense. You see this boy who is baptized. And let me guess if you weren't baptized, you were not good enough to date him. Is that right? Yeah. His parents were very, very, yeah, very in it and culturally very strict. They're from the Philippines. They really liked me before we were dating. Cause I was like kind of friends with his sisters, sort of not really. It was kind of like forced to be around each other. Sometimes we started dating and then suddenly his parents wanted nothing to do with me and they were They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't look at me. It was really weird. And I wasn't baptized when we first started talking. So that kind of sped up the process. I was like, I got to do this now, you know, but he was, yeah, I was 19. I think we started, I would have been 18 or 19 when we started dating, but he was 25. I like thought like, oh, I'm going to marry him. Like he's just, I just thought he was the sweetest person. And, and he is. We did end up breaking up because I was having a lot of mental health issues. I like told him to break up with me, but I didn't want him to. And you know, just like, and he did it. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> After that, I was just like, screw it. Why am I, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. I only did it for him. I only, and you know, it was nice to have my parents proud of me. Most people, as girls, we do things for boys like maybe we'll dress a certain way or we'll take on a new, you know, musical group or a band for the sake of a boy. But in indoctrinated in indoctrination situations, no, you dedicated your life to an organization disguised as a religion. And and interestingly, you knew that there would be consequences to that. That's how deep the indoctrination runs us, it runs through us when we're kids where we think that that is what determines our self-worth, that that is what's going to make someone of the opposite sex see our value and want to date us. I'm really sorry to hear you went through that. You know, it's, I think honestly, in at some, on some level, I knew it wasn't true because I really, I did the double life thing big time and I never felt guilt about it. I mean, I think I started to once I was getting into that phase of like actually getting baptized and going through the question thing, (laughs) you know, like I had boyfriends in high school. I would drink, I would smoke, I would party. It's unfortunate that it's called a double life. You were 
doing what normal teenagers do. You were right. figuring your life out and making decisions and learning what works for you and what doesn't work for you. It's not necessarily right. a double life to everybody else, not a JW. And when we say living a double life, it automatically puts us in the box of I'm doing something wrong. And that mm-hmm. at a young age, that it's a stigma and that's a cloud over your head already. So no, you were a normal teenager coming from an XJW's perspective. You were a normal teenager just trying to appease people by being in their religion. Yeah, that's pretty much how I felt. Didn't interest me at all. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, I know the beliefs really well. Like, oh, I have great knowledge of the Bible. That, well, that's not done anything for me. That is not, you know, it's not done me any good in my personal life. I, where I'm at now is I, I would not consider myself a religious person. I don't know what I believe. It's hard to know. I didn't start looking into this stuff. Like I've been out of the organization for four years, but I didn't start looking into it until like August (laughs) of just last year. And it was, I didn't have anyone at all to talk to about it. And I was just, I felt crazy. I felt like I was losing my mind before I realized how bad it was going to be to try and talk about this with my parents. I kind of, you know, you, you read online, oh, that Jehovah's Witness parents react really badly. I didn't expect that from my parents. Like, oh, I know them better. They wouldn't do that to me. And they definitely have changed their attitude towards me since I've started asking questions, but they haven't shunned me. They're still like, you know, like there for me. But I talked to the, well, my stepdad, he's an elder. And I brought up the elders handbook and just kind of some stuff in there that I found a little bit disturbing. I talked about like, well, the two witness rule, which to be honest with you, I didn't even realize was a thing until recently. I had never been in any sort of situation that, you know, needed that. So I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing, but yeah, that. And then the fact that it says like child pornography is, doesn't require, like, that's not doesn't require to get the authorities involved. I don't know. Just some things in there really bothered me. He didn't have a good answer to give me. I don't know. I don't think there's really any getting through to them right now. I don't, I'm not really trying to at this point anymore. Like I understand. I mean, it was, it took a long time for me being out of the religion to even look at it. And I had to go through this whole mental process of making these connections. There's there's not a way for them, for me to get them in my place right now. It takes time. Make those connections and realize, wow, history actually shows how wrong all of this is. Um, yes, it's a deconstruction process. Right. Let's back up a little bit. So you got baptized at 19. And what was your aha moment? You You say you never really fully believed it and you were doing things normal teenage, late teenagers do, that's classified. Again, they're very good at classifying people and giving people titles. So you were doing what normal people do. What did the wake up process that I don't want this anymore, this is not for me, look like for you at such a young age? Because I'm not sure if you were relying on your parents or living with your parents, because that adds another layer of control onto someone in their younger late teens, earlier twenties, what they're going through. Yeah, actually that there was a one specific thing that made me be done. My aunt, she divorced my uncle and then she started dating a woman and my family, my mom, my mom's other sister, my other aunt, they wanted nothing to do with her. They started completely excluding her for like, she's not a Jehovah's witness, but like they just, before it wasn't really like a problem. 
And then they all of a sudden wanted nothing to do with her. And it was horrendous how they treated her. It really upset me. And I didn't like, I didn't know at the time that I was bisexual. That came a few years later. I ended up being like, nope, this, this is ridiculous. You can't treat, treat people this way. I don't understand how somebody's sexuality makes them a bad person or a different person, you know, but they teach, you know, like it's a lifestyle and all this. And it just really bothered me. So I moved out and I actually moved in with my aunt and her girlfriend and lived with them for a while. It was good. I actually probably should back up a little bit though, to be honest, I'm really bad at storytelling. <laughs> You're not. You're great at storytelling. And sometimes when we're when we're telling a story, you're talking about years and years of stories and situations that you're trying to put into a 45-minute segment. So there's gonna be gaps and there's gonna be ups and downs. So you're a great storyteller, trust me. I I, I I've done this, I've been doing this long enough, and you you're doing really well. So go ahead, go back if you need to. And I just want to say before I start talking about any of this, my parents and I are good now. I've dealt, well, I haven't really dealt with the trauma, but I'm dealing with the trauma and getting past it. But my stepdad was very physically abusive, very physically abusive. And that was really rough for me. I knew it was wrong when it was happening. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't internalize it like I deserve this, you know, like some people. I knew it was wrong and I hated him for it. I despised him. I was scared of him and just the way that he talked to me about like my, my weight, which when I was younger, was like 120, 130 pounds. And he was just, it's, I couldn't go to the kitchen to get some ice cream without him looking me up and down. Like, really, you're going to do that. You're going to eat that. And that really bothered me. I felt constantly judged. I felt disgusted with myself all the time. He could be very bad chronic depression where you have to kind of cycle through medications, stop working. So then you have to get on the next one. And it's just like a never ending cycle. But because of that, she did deal with some alcohol issues, some alcoholism. She drank a lot when I was maybe, maybe like six years old to 14 or 15. And that was really rough for me. That was scary for me. I felt very helpless because I mean, I knew what was happening when she was drunk. I knew she was drunk. Her friends would try to hide it from me. They would have poker parties like every weekend and they would have Jehovah's Witness friends over. They would be like close, you know, really close friends that I guess just didn't say anything to the elders. My mom would really over drink and they would have to like take care of her and carry her to her bed and they would try to hide it from me. And I just remember feeling so frustrated, like there wasn't anything I could well, do. Yeah, because now you're dealing with now you want to talk a double life. Now, you know, you're talking about active Jehovah's Witnesses who are supposed to be taking care of you. And even outside any religion, those are not things you do around children. Right. <laughs> those are not healthy examples to be setting, but continue. As I got older, honestly, it just got worse. I remember specifically one night I came home from school. I was doing something late there and I asked my dad, I was like, where's mom? He's like, I don't know. So I go looking for her. Like the door was open when I walked in. My mom's nowhere to be seen. And my stepdad's like, I, I don't know. He he just liked to like to pretend it wasn't happening. So I run down the street. I'm like, oh my God. Cause she would just kind of like leave sometimes when she was drinking. And so I go running down the street. I'm looking all over for her. Finally, I find her like, in the front of the house, like next to the gate on the other side of the garage, just like sitting 
there talking on the phone with my aunt with a bottle of wine in her hand. I, I fell apart. I had a friend with me. My aunt, she was like the principal of my school at the time. We were doing something there. She brought me to my house. And because it was not okay, I ended up going back to her house. But I was just a mess. And I was so embarrassed. You know? How old but were you at this time? At this time, I would have been like 14. I was in eighth grade. She was struggling, you know, I don't, I don't blame her at all. Right. I ended up going through my own addiction issues pretty bad for a while. I went to rehab five times for pretty much everything but alcohol. <laughs> like, I guess my mom kind of scared me away from that. Yeah. I struggled a lot with that, which was tough too. Cause in the recovery community, they want you to find like a higher power. I chose Jehovah, even though I wasn't, you know, a witness anymore. I like, that was the only thing that was ever semi real to me. You know, that was all I knew. So that's what I chose for a while. Or I just chose God in general. I remember I was like, okay, I'm going to stop saying Jehovah's name. I'm just going to pray. And so I did that. It, that didn't work for me. The, the 12 steps, it was great. I did that for a few years, but it wasn't really for me. I left the recovery community about two years ago and I've been sober ever since. And congratulations. Thank you. I, I had well, another good friend of mine who uh, he, he's been on the channel and he was closeted homosexual. And then we went to pioneer school together and he also, once he was his fellowship to live his life, he also talks about his journey through addiction and he had the same struggle of finding a higher power. And one of the things he said that I'm sure you can relate to this is that he said that his biggest struggle was not just because well, well, it changed him. His viewpoint of it was sure. He didn't believe in it. It was that AA felt a little culty to him. And he said that uh, as long as the higher power wasn't himself. And he said that changed things for him. Is that similar to your experience? Yeah. No, they did definitely say your higher power can't be yourself because you need something higher than yourself. Because mm-hmm. clearly what they say is you've tried to do it yourself a million times and obviously it's not working. No, you need to have something else. Yeah, no, honestly, I, at this point, I, you know, of course, I don't know what I believe, but I've done a lot of research and um, I think of things as more of like, like, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I believe in, in God at this point. I, I do think it's possible that that creation is real, but I don't necessarily believe in just like, like the Christian God. I don't believe if, if he's real, he's not the only one. That's what I believe. And if and he's how not, does it, how does it feel for you to not know, to not have the answers? Is that a source of stress or does that feel kind of interesting it, or kind of open-ended? It was a source of stress, but my whole life I've always been like, so thirsty for just like knowledge. So when I get into something, I just go head first into it. I just jump into it full force and I get very, I just will research it constantly. So that's honestly, I've been doing a lot of that for a while. I'm the so. same way. I, 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 won't, I won't leave the house, hide yourself in your room and you research a topic till it can't be researched anymore. And you come out after like three weeks and you know everything on the topic and then you go on to the next topic. It's nice though, because honestly, I think that, you know, like that quote, like it's better to have questions you can't answer than answers you can't question. And that's really the issue with the, you know, the organization, you can't, question their teachings. And if you do question them, you're told to go to only their website to do the research. You know what I mean? I don't think that 
anybody can truly believe in something unless they have, you know, entertained the possibility that that's not the case. Yes, because if you, well, this is where the word truth is such an interesting word when people are looking for the truth. Truths, like we've we've heard many times, truth stands up to scrutiny. So for example, I always use the illustration that when I'm looking on Amazon and I want to buy something, I look at the negative reviews and I look at the positive reviews for a reason. I want to have positive and negative reviews before I make my decision. And when you're in that religion, especially if you're born a fourth generation, you don't really get that opportunity to decide for yourself if this is something that's right for you because you're indoctrinated from an early age that it's right. And then there's that inner conflict. And I find it fascinating about you. I was just talking to someone recently because I wish I was like this. I find it interesting that you knew from an early age that it wasn't actually true, that there was always something kind of eating away at you. Did that ever have an impact on your self-worth that you must not be doing enough or praying enough or thinking um, badly about yourself for not kind of succumbing to the indoctrination process? Absolutely. That was what my mom always told me. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't, you didn't put your heart into it. You didn't. And I'm like, I really did. They kept telling me fake it till you make it, you know? So I really did. At one point I was auxiliary pioneering. I was doing so well. I felt like, you know, doing well, meaning picking all the boxes and doing yeah. what you had to be doing. Yeah. Following all the rules is what you mean. Yeah. Doing well doesn't say, it doesn't sound like you were doing well for yourself. And as, as it pertains to stepping into your authenticity, you were doing well by JW standards. That is what I think is such a problem right now. Again, I was recently talking to someone and I said to them, you're just so good, right? And this person said, I don't really know what good means because they're out of the organization now. And being a good person to them meant I'm following all the rules as a JW. And now there's no rules to follow as a JW since they're out. And now they're all upside down as to what a good person actually does. Since I left the organization, I really feel like Okay, so I'm the one that makes my like the decision. I'm the one who decides where my life goes from here. Who am I? What do I want? What I was, I'm a no good slave, you know? That's just what am I, you know? Who am I? Yeah, your identity, your personal identity is they even, I mean, I'm amazed that that was the exact wording that they used. Like you're, I that you are identified as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And it never occurred to me that that was actually not really a good thing because your identity should not be wrapped up in your religion. Your identity is a collection of life experiences and beliefs are peppered in there. And your identity is not necessarily a title. And now that we're out, there's this, this internal struggle or even an external struggle of who am I? What do I believe? And where do I stand on certain topics? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, and, and when I left too, you know, they, my family's like, oh, you're going to go celebrate Christmas now. You're going to like, excuse me. They always me. say that. They always make it up in tea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know what you mean, but probably, yeah, I probably will. <laughs> so what did leaving look like for you? You, you had that situation with your aunt. Are you disassociated or disfellowshipped or? Just sneakily kind of. <laughs> Hard fader. All right. Well, that's not easy to do. It's not. My parents did try to like entrap me with talking to the elders a few times, but I haven't done it in years. 
Which would be silly on their part, because if there was an announcement about you, then that would have a reflection on whether or not they can talk to you, which is fantastic that they're not shunning you, by the way. I think to listeners who are hearing that, that brings a lot of sense of relief that there are some parents out there who are not shunning their children, adult or not. So I'm really happy for you in that aspect. But if you were announced as disfellowshipped, do you think that would have made a different impact as opposed to fading? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Because he's an elder, he's that father. Exactly. Mm. Okay. I don't know about my mom, to be honest with you. I, I kind of feel like my mom is smarter than she's acting. I think she knows. I think she just, I think she knows because like, for example, in high school, my best friend was gay and he wore like makeup and stuff and his dad took it away from him and like, wouldn't let him wear makeup. So my mom bought him makeup. That's, that's not something you would see a Jehovah's Witness doing. Certainly not, but good for you. Good for her. I like this woman. (laughs) So what does life look like for you now? What do you, you've been out four years and you voluntarily come on a show and there are so many, I see the Reddit group as I'm, I'm sure you are familiar with that group. I mean, there's so many people in your age group who have these struggles. So it's, it's kind of an honor to have you on the, not kind of, it is an honor to have you on the show to, to represent that age group and people who are dealing with addiction and, and celebrating their sobriety after coming out of such a traumatic life of being indoctrinated into religion. How does life look like for you now? And what's going on in the future for you? That's a really good question. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Right now, um, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of just kind of trying to figure out what I want to do. I've recently been, I just feel so strongly about the active, about activism. I want to get involved so bad. I never thought that that would be something that I would want to get involved in, but I feel so passionate about this, you know? Like ever since I started researching it, it's just. So activism as far as XJW activism or. Yeah, XJW activism specifically, Mm -hmm. just because I know that there's, there's a lot of people, you know, that are still in that really like, don't, they know that it's not real, but they can't leave, you know, because they're family. And I get that. I can't imagine, I can't imagine my family shunning me. That is like a huge fear of mine and it may happen, but. That's not something that would make me want to go back. That's the last thing I would want to do. Yeah, don't think I don't think shunning is like a loving provision at all. <laughs> it's not. In fact, shunning is a war tactic. You know, you isolate someone from their friends and family at any given moment, they will I mean, if we go back to act, they did this in World War II. They isolate people from their comfort zone, from their family, from their friends to extract information or to get them back into compliance. It's an age-old tale to tell. And so for the organization to weaponize friends and family and vilify people like you and me who are out here just living our life just because we don't believe it anymore, there is a divide there. And then they use and misuse scriptures to justify that type of behavior. And I could see I'm the type where I see my siblings and my family and friends as victims that are yet to become survivors. So what kind of activism do you see yourself doing? And I, I would like to say that you represent the 20 somethings and the late teens who are coming out 
and have this, you guys have this shared struggle of not quite being out on your own yet. And you still have these wonderful opportunities to pursue careers and education if you want to. Can you speak to the, those in the audience who are listening to you who are in that exact situation? Perhaps they're Mercedes four years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely recommend doing as much research as possible. You know, I do as much research as possible because that's going to make you more um, confident in the decision you're making to step away from that. And that, you know, it feels good because at first, you know, I felt a little bit like, oh, but maybe, maybe it's not true, you know, and I started doing more research and that really helped me realize that you know what, I don't know what the truth really is, but I know that it's not that. And Uh I think it's important to realize, I mean, and and if they haven't left yet, it's hard to know, but it's, you can find so much more happiness outside of the organization because you can just be you, you know, you don't have to pretend to be this, you know, perfect person who doesn't swear and doesn't have sex. And I've made real friends, real friends who I know that would be with me, like, no matter what real friends that, you know, have never abandoned me regardless of what my spiritual beliefs are. Like it it doesn't, that kind of love is not in the organization and you're not going to find it. It's not possible because if you say you're going to leave, then they're not your friend anymore. And that's not true friendship. You know, they talk about how you can only find true friends in Jehovah's organization. It's just, you can't, you know, I mean, maybe some people, but it's, that devotion to the religion that really causes problems with relationships, I think. Oh, definitely. And honestly, one of the, the th- if I can go back to my, tw- I was super peony Mercedes. I, I wish I could say that I was the one who didn't believe it like you, you were way ahead of the curve. And I, I am just so inspired by you. And you're literally 20 years younger than me. And I wish I had been, like that when I was younger. That being said, would you say that there are a couple of tips, if you can give a couple of tips to the people who are just trying to come out of this, for example, um, save your money, get a job. You know, a lot of these PME parents do have their thumbs. Sometimes it's not the best advice to give someone who is still living at home with their parents to just leave, to just change. So we're talking to PMO, late teens, early 20s, who don't believe it, but have no place to go. And to just leave when they have no backup plan, no money, no resources may not be the best advice. And you having been through all the things that you've been through, because honestly, your wisdom is, is an old soul, someone who's been around for a couple of eons, someone who's probably lived a couple of lifetimes before this. But if you can speak to that person, what are some, maybe your top three tips for them to just kind of get acclimated to, to, and prepared to leave. Yeah, I definitely recommend, you know, having your finances in place so that if something does go down, you are, you know, you're, you're financially stable. You have yourself covered. That's definitely important. I would recommend, yeah, keeping what you think very quiet, you know, for a while, do your research until you have an exact idea of what you really want and what you really believe, but definitely having, you know, a place to go you know, if you need it and making friends outside of the organization, for sure, that will help you to get acclimated, I guess, to, you know, 
outside of it because it, I mean, I didn't have that situation for me. I wasn't like thrown out to the world and felt like I needed to figure out how, where I belong, I guess. I mean, I still don't know where that is, but it was easy for me to, you know, make friends with quote unquote worldly people, but it's definitely good to just have um, a support system, support system and financial stability. (laughs) When I was uh, 13, I, um, I had like a really heavy menstrual period and I ended up losing almost all my blood. I got down to 2.9 and it was really bad. I just like, so what happened was I was like, you know, bleeding really bad. My mom took me to the hospital cause I couldn't, I was like white and I just like, couldn't get up and like do anything. And we got to the hospital, they did like a, you know, a CVC and they said that it was at like four something, but sent me home and said, drink Gatorade. So they sent me home the next morning. I passed out. I broke my jaw and I went back to the, um, the ER. What I'm sorry. I have to share this one little thing. I remember literally like laying, sitting at the kitchen table the day before I went back to the ER and my stepdad had to leave and he needed me to watch my little brother. He was like a baby at the time. And I was like just sitting at the kitchen table. I couldn't even lift my head up because I was so weak. And he's like screaming at me to get up and like watch my brother. And I'm like, I can't. And we went back to the hospital and just kind of let me lay there and just bleed. And they didn't do anything. They did kind of a physical exam to see if it was like some sort of injury and then they like uh I don't know it wasn't it wasn't any sort of like bleeding disorder they think it was just a hormone thing what ended up happening is a nurse came and said I don't think she's getting the care that she should be getting here you need she needs to be transferred to um like a children's hospital So they transferred me over to like their sister hospital. I like, once I got there, they took me over there in an ambulance. And once I got there, it was like critical. It was like, my body was shutting down and they, you know, I remember vaguely being like awake and they were putting a pick line in. I don't remember seeing anything, just like hearing the nurses talking and they were saying like that they were going to do that for the blood transfusion. And I was like, Oh, I don't, I'm not going to take blood. I, you know, and they're like, "Uh, um, okay. (laughs) And This was on like a Monday. Anyway, it got really bad. Obviously, I wasn't like, you know, conscious for all this, but um, supposedly my parents were a wreck. They, you know, they said no to the blood transfusion. The HLC was there. Yeah, my parents were a wreck, supposedly. And they, yeah, they said no, but then they had to get a court order because I was going to die. So they, they did that. And, uh, I woke up on Wednesday and I remember being like, oh, wow, I feel so much better. And they told me and I like freaked out, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was I felt like I wanted to like just crawl out of my skin. You know what I mean? I felt disgusting. And I don't know. They had like this elder that I like felt comfortable with becoming. I'm, you know, condemned by God. Now I'm disgusting. I'm like, I just felt like horrible person. They were just trying to tell me, you know, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You're not. Jehovah doesn't hate you. It was a really, like, kind of traumatic experience. After that, I had really bad anxiety. I remember my mom just slept in my room forever. Had insane, like, panic attacks. And, you know, then that, I mean, I got on medication. 
and have been like medicated for depression, anxiety, CPTSD, ADD, all this stuff. Ever since all that happened, it was like everything went downhill from there. Imagine waking up to the fact that you are going to live and then grappling with the fact that you're condemned by God because you're alive. I can't imagine what that was like for you. That must have been. And then the elders come in and say, no, 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 it's, you know, it's not your fault. Jehovah still loves you. But my first thought would be, but does he though? Because this, this happened to me. So then what they're saying essentially is that it's the doctor's fault, that the court order, that everything, it was everybody's fault rather than look how hard these people worked to save this girl's life rather yep. than just have a positive viewpoint on it. It was in the negative. There's always somebody to blame in that organization. It's somebody's fault for something to happen. And naturally, if a medical emergency isn't traumatic enough, then you have the spiritual aspect compounded on top of it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I felt horrible about myself after that. Actually, about a year, about a year and a half later, I did try to take my life for the first time. I was just so depressed. For a while after that, I didn't, I just didn't know what to do with myself. And yeah, I started just, I ended up going to the mental hospital twice because of like attempted suicides. And it was like really just between like 13 and 22, it was just really a mess. Traumatic experiences will do that to you. I'm glad to hear that you were speaking out about it and you sound so confident in your, in your healing journey. You know, these are not easy things to talk about because there's a stigma around this. I, in my day job, I work at a mental health facility and we have a program for young girls, young teenagers for this very reason, because not Mm -hmm. enough people talk about it, especially in that religion. You're kind of robotic. You're everybody's happy. Everybody's okay. We don't talk about the negative. We don't talk about the realities of life. We don't talk about depression because depression means you don't have enough faith in the resurrection. We don't talk about these things, but I can guarantee you there are more people dealing with it at your age or at that age that you were dealing with it than is being honest with it than we even know of. Yeah, I agree. Well, you are extremely brave and courageous for coming out and talking about this. It sounds like you're looking to end the stigma as well. I really am. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was very nervous about this, (laughs) but no, I'm nervous for a lot of reasons. You know, you're, you're, coming out publicly, you're talking about your personal life. You have not in, in pre-production for those of you who are listening on the podcast in pre-production, Mercedes mentioned that she has not spoken to an XJW who had been through it. So Mercedes, this is not easy to do. You were extremely courageous and you may in fact be saving lives of people who are actually listening to this right now. Thank you. It's honestly been very, very validating. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could come on once a week, once a month and and talk to your age group for if that's something you find you want to do until you get your own platform. But also, I also want to speak to the fact that since you do want to get into activism, where can people find you and what would be the best way to contact you if there is a young person or a teenager or 20 something listening to this who wants to share experiences with you? Definitely. Um, you can contact me on TikTok. My username is uh, Mercedes underscore M29. And then I am also on Reddit. I am, I don't 
have any sort of hard feelings towards my parents. I don't blame them for making the decision that they made at the time. I, I understand why they made the decision they did. I, you know, at the time was making the same decision. I don't know what it would be like, you know, for a kid in that situation, but they clearly believed they were doing the right thing. And I do think that they believe that they were, I, I just want to make that clear that I love my parents and I have no hard feelings towards that. I completely understand why they did what they did. And, you know, I'll hope, I'll hope every day that they wake up. But at this point, I'm just trying to show them that there is life outside of the organization. Isn't it amazing that everything you've been through, you still find ways to infuse life with positivity, forgiveness, understanding and empathy. And I think that that's, there's a lot to be said about that, that when we leave the organization, we're painted as monsters, as people who are filled with hate and rage. And I can't tell you, I'm yet to meet on my channel specifically, one person who goes by that description, who in fact, most agree with your sentiments that I, I still love my friends and family and I wish the best they're also indoctrinated, which we all were. I never want to forget what it's like to be on the inside. I never right. want to want to forget what it's like to have been disfellowshipped, to have participated in shunning, because it's because of those experiences and your experiences that we're able to sit in the pain with others. And now you're in activism and now you're able to help those people come out. And that's kind of how this, this works. It's not about crashing kingdom halls and crashing zoom calls and yelling outside of assembly halls. Like that's not actually a productive form of activism. <laughs> We're trying to reach lives and let people know like you are, listen, regardless of age or background, there's still a lot of forgiveness on this side. Absolutely. I agree. I think that okay. at first the anger, but it takes a lot of, <laughs> yeah, understanding. Well, anger is, is, a good thing. Anger. We have to feel the anger, anger. And I say this in every video, anger overturns laws. Anger makes us anger means there's been hurt. Anger means there's been an injustice here, right? I think it's pretty naive for us to say, well, I'm not angry. Well, no, it's just sitting in that anger. What are we going to do with that anger? And how are we going to move forward through this process is what we're out to do and help people do. And now you joined the team in doing that. So I'm going to put all your information in the description box and we'd love to have you back on and revisit with you and see what life looks like um, a little further down the road, if you'd be open to doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. I definitely would. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Wendy. Bye. Take care. Thank you so much for watching the show. If you want to tell your story, you can do so by emailing me, wendyrene.gmail.com or click on the Be On The Schedule tab on my website, wendyrene.com. Thank you so much for watching and we'll see you next time.